Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Scott Sochnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams And this is the Honey Deuce Index sports business podcast, The Sportacast. You didn't know there was a Honey Deuce Index, did you? There wasn't until Sportico <laughs> created one, Scott. Yeah, uh, uh, credit to Asla Pelit, our, our, our reporter who went out. And I mean, if, if you don't know about the Honey Deuce, that means you haven't been to the U.S. Open. I mean, it is the signature cocktail of the tournament. And uh, while I am not a bartender, I can tell you the ingredients. Grey Goose Vodka is the majority of it. Chambord, if you didn't know, that's a black raspberry liqueur, freshly squeezed lemonade. And then you got three pieces of, and here's how it gets the name, honeydew melon shaped like tennis balls. So what do you think a cocktail like that would cost? And, and I don't want to pick on just the USTA. Yeah. If you went uh, out in Manhattan uh, on, a, on a Friday afternoon, what do you think you're going to pay for a cocktail like that? And then we'll get to the price at Arthur Ashe Stadium and, and on the adorning grounds. It obviously depends on, on where you are, Scott. The, the price of cocktails in New York has has started to tick up significantly. It is not crazy to see a $17, $18, $19 cocktail right. in New York. Uh, so the, the $22 honeydews that you can buy at the U.S. Open is a little bit above that. But it's not uh, it's not crazy, unfortunately. I think there's probably people listening to this that live in other cities that are probably uh, aghast at the fact that, that, that cocktails are growing that expensive but yeah, like you know well, you you know how, yeah you know how i am with, with my dollar i don't mind spending but i need value in return right i even i who lived in manhattan for 20 plus years i've attended the open i don't know how many times if i stepped to the bar and said you know somebody said he's got you gotta try the honeydews if i stepped to the bar and said honeydews please i would probably have a 20 dollar bill out expecting to pay for the drink and leave the tip and then if they said to me, 22, I'd probably furrow my brow and give a bit of a quizzical look like, oh my God, I got to dig for more? Like I have to go back in the wallet? So, And again, I'm a veteran of both Manhattan and the US Open. I'm still surprised that it's 22 bucks this year. By the way, up 10%. So up 220 from 2021. And when it debuted in 2007, thank you, Asla, 12 bucks. 12 to 22 from 07 to now. 
That's amazing. I just looked up, by the way, because I was curious how much the mint julep costs at the Kentucky Derby, which feels like kind of the equivalent, same type of crowd, same event, same type of drink. Uh, $15 mint julep at the Kentucky Derby. So the the uh, the honeydew is vastly outstripping the cost of a mint julep at the uh, at the Kentucky Derby. And it did, by the way, until this year, the price of the honeydews rose faster than inflation. Another yep. uh, another point that Oslo That's the Honeydews Index that she created. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah between 2012 and 2022. <laughs> so we got a nice, we have a nice decade, right? Between 2012 and 2022, the drinks cost went up 57%, 22 bucks from 14 bucks, while the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, rose 29. So it didn't just beat the CPI, it significantly beat the CPI. Biggest hike between 2017, 2019, when it went from 16 to 18 bucks. Twelve and a half percent CPI went up four percent, so three x the consumer price index. It's amazing, and it's a great year for that price to have happened, Scott. I, I've been out at the open three or four times this week, as you know. I've I, I, I spent a lot of time out there in the past decade or so. This is the most crowded I think I've ever seen it, and and, and call it the Serena Williams effect, call it the post COVID people want to see live tennis effect. Whatever it is, there is uh, they are selling more tickets than they ever have. Merchandise sales are up significantly, 34%, according to uh, a Sportico story. Food and beverage for, 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 for the big matches up 70%. There is a big business boom happening right now in Flushing. And it will be interesting to see as, as more people get eliminated. Serena Williams, for example, gone now. Uh, if, if that tempers some of the big things that they're seeing. But I think the USTA is on pace for a, a record-breaking business U.S. Open. Well, organizers expect to sell 200,000 honeydeuces over amazing. two weeks. 200,000 times the 22 bucks. Yeah, but hey, now we say good thing about the USTA. Let's not forget this does fund a whole lot of other programs around the country, tennis-related programs. It's not like just somebody, it's not a for-profit venture where it's going in somebody's pocket. This does fuel a whole lot of tennis-related ventures around the country, but I'm still, I'm still surprised. 200,000 over two weeks. And you mentioned Serena. I mean, if you want it, before she announced this would be her final tournament, they were selling about 3,200 tickets a day. The day after she said, this is it, I'm done, 16,500 tickets, 515% increase. And you didn't even know, by the way, is she going to be out after round one? She can be out after round two. Without mentioning names, I will tell you that I have a friend who told me he happened to have two tickets to Serena's second round match. He had purchased them previously, didn't know it was Serena related, just bought for that day or that night. Uh, paid 50 something bucks, sold them for 1500 for the pair. Wow. So I texted him. I was like, I hope you're celebrating. And he's like, yeah, we're out for dinner. <laughs> so there, there are people who decided to pass on seeing Serena's what turned out to be her final match and instead took the cash instead. Not yeah. surprising, right? And, and that the tickets are an interesting one for the USTA, right? Because I think in a normal year, they probably sell 90 to 92% of, of their ticket inventory. So this year is a, is a boom. They might get to 99% or, or whatever it is. There's not that much ticket. Uh, they're not capturing that much more on this boom year versus 
regular years. The, the, the brokers obviously did great. People who bought, like, like your friend, bought Serena Williams tickets, were able to resell them uh, for a huge amount. But the USTA obviously doesn't see any part of that, uh, of that resale. So I think if you're sitting at the USTA, yeah, going from 92 to 97 or 98% of ticket sales is great. That's obviously you like that. But I think it's more that, that, that honeydew number you gave. It's the merchandise sales. It's food and beverage. It's all the ancillary things that also seem to be going up way higher, by the way, than the, uh, the, the, than the ticket sales. Those are the things that I think make the biggest difference for the USTA. I always marveled at the number of the really big fuzzy tennis balls they sold. Like, Love those things. Yeah. Forget kids. They, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everybody who would line up on the practice courts. And one of the cool things about the US Open, if you had the past there, you can go and hang out by the practice courts when the best players in the world come off. And they're more than happy oftentimes to just sit there and sign it. And everybody's holding their big fuzzy tennis ball <laughs> and they get those things signed. I, I think it, I think it's pretty cool. Um, how, but you, you just mentioned it's not like they get a cut of that. Is that a fail on the USTA's part that they are not recouping a piece on the resale market? Everybody knows there's going to be a resale market, right? You get your official t- resale platform, make it easy for people to transfer tickets, and you take a piece of buy and sell. I mean, is that a missed revenue opportunity here? Yeah, this has been the the the, the classic debate for sports teams, for concert, uh, for for artists, for for venues, trying to figure out how to capitalize on that, right? Because you can do dynamically priced tickets, but people get livid when they're they're trying to buy the last Springsteen ticket and it's a twelve hundred dollar ticket, right? You can have closed ecosystems where you're only allowed to resell your ticket, your USTA ticket on a USTA approved site where they can maybe get a cut there. But people, consumers, you know, get really upset about that. They they don't like the idea that you can buy something and then uh, only be able to resell it in a certain part where you're not able to recoup all the economics. But you, you can, mean, but if you know the rules going in, okay, you know, you know the rules going totally. in, you don't have to buy it in the first place. In, in general, the industry is moving away from that world yeah. into kind of the more open ecosystem. Um, but this is the one of the things everybody loves about the economics of, of NFTs, for example, right? Is that you, every you get a transaction every, down the line. every single yeah. transaction. And that would be a game changer. If the USTA was able to get whatever it is, 2% of every resold ticket, that would make that, that that would exponentially increase the ticketing revenue they're they're getting here. They're not able to do that. But yeah, this is something that is kind of always debated. It's a matter of how loud consumers are about it. Lawmakers, Scott, have have increasingly begun to to take an interest in, in 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 the resale ticket world. So they're also wading in from a consumer protection standpoint. There's a lot going on there. But in general, yes, teams would love teams, leagues would all love to get a bigger cut of of the resale because it it, it really hurts them. You you keep prices down because you want families to be able to afford a game. But 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 if you're pricing way below the resale market, then you're lo- losing out on even more. And when you raise prices, people freak out as well too. Yeah, it's it's a tough little balancing act. Act. And some people have figured it out. Some people are trying new things, but I'm not sure if anybody is fully happy with the way in which their primary and their secondary markets mesh together. All right. Since we are recording on Labor Day, we should note that college football players are back to work. Not that they're employees of the universities <laughs> or anything. Evan. Yeah. Not that they're employees or anything. So don't give me any side eye there. Any university presidents or, or, or players just Yet. noting yeah, that yet. college football <laughs> players are back to work. Uh, and there will be more working later as the uh, playoff seems to have expanded, right? Um, what did you watch? What did caught your eye? I'll, I'll tell you, man, you know me. I'm yeah. not one to you know sit and watch the sports over the weekend or it's just not what I do. I'll keep in tra- I'll keep track. I, I love the business side, but I'm not going to sit in front of my TV for 10 hours. It's not going to happen. I caught a little bit of Ohio State running the clock out on Notre Dame. 
mm-hmm. that I caught a little bit of that. Um, I, I saw only because it was in my Twitter feed. I saw my alma mater, Syracuse University, with a big win over Louisville, like thirty-one-seven or something like that, which I was not expecting. You know, I did not know Syracuse would beat anybody this year. Okay, fine. I know they're not ranked. I, I, I get it. Um, what? Oh, I saw and I saw the ending for Florida State. And LSU who, last and night. And LSU. Yeah, yeah the, the what an ending, huh? Yeah. yeah. But here's my question. Here, and I know we don't like we're gonna get a little sports radio, forget about the uh, the business of it for a second. But when when they had the ball with like a minute to go on the four yard line, and who pitches out there? Why are you risking and I I, I don't get it. These coaches get paid so much money. Just hand the ball off. Just kick the field goal. You're you're up by a touchdown. I don't understand why you're risking pitching the ball. Of course, the kid dropped it, went the other way, and they scored. But then they got the missed extra point. Uh, yeah, I, I think that one of the things that people love about college sports is college football is just how unrefined it is when it comes to comparing it to to the NFL. Right? That's you just why you get can't bet on this stuff. Try, I can't. I can't calls, imagine anybody making bad decisions. Did oh. you see the end of the App State UNC game? There you know, were I didn't. Sixty something points scored in the fourth quarter, but App State uh, UNC had a had a one point lead. Uh, and and App State tried an onside kick. They they UNC recovered the onside kick, but took it to the house. Scored a touchdown when they should have just taken a knee. Took an right. eight point lead. Gave oh, the ball back to App State. Oh, no, no, App State no. went back down and, and and tied the game with a with a touchdown and two point conversion. Uh, yeah, there's just so much and 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 that the ending of that LSU game another good example. I think one of the things that is really exciting is that you just don't see mistakes like that in the NFL, and it makes college football uh, a, a a bit a bit more exciting to watch. But not to bet. I mean, I'd be pulling my hair out if I oh, had you, the, yes. if I had the under, and then all of a sudden, sixty points in the fourth quarter just fall down. Quarter, don't yeah. take it. Don't take it. Do not score. You're only going to give the other team an opportunity. All right. But the big part here, a uh, story that you handled for us, is the, the college football playoff is getting bigger. I like the fact that you're going to have or could have some on campus games when the, you know the top teams will get a bye. The others will have first round on, on their campus if, if they choose. And the reason, of course, we're doing this will be because it's more inventory uh, and the networks will salivate over the possibility of selling more possible champions here. You know, oh, now they got a shot. More games, more inventory, more money flowing into the college football ecosystem. This was the the least surprising surprising yeah. news uh, that, that maybe has happened in our in our in our world in the past year. The the college football playoff. Everybody has known that that it was never going to stay at, at four games essentially since the the moment it debuted the, the, yeah, about a decade four. ago. Yeah. Um, but figuring out what a bigger one would look like actually became very difficult and. Especially now, as so much is changing in college sports, as the Power Five is fracturing a little bit with the with the Big Ten and the SEC rising up, and the others kind of trying to find their place, figuring out how to do a bigger playoff, who got automatic entries, who didn't, became so a really be cha- big fight. It's the champions of the conference, and then it'll be a battle between everybody else in the Big Ten and the SEC, ranking wise. Like it'll, it'll be who's number two and three in the SEC and the Big Ten, and who's going to complain and get left out. So the new format, which was just voted on and approved on Friday, is 12 teams. The six conference champions that are the the highest ranked get automatic entry. And then the next six top ranked teams take the other six slots. Uh, And that is going to... It's good. I think this is a win. I would say for the the the, the five group of five conferences and the Pac-12 and the and the Big Ten. It's going to make their seasons relevant to the end because there's a pretty good chance a, a handful of their champions are going to end up in the in the college football playoff. Can I ask you something? Since you yeah. know all about this stuff, sure. I'm now these teams 
in the Pac-12 that are negotiating with the Big Ten and the SEC, over the Big Ten, right? Obviously, we, we know whether it's uh, Oregon or Washington or whatever, there are other Pac-12 teams that aren't you better off, UCLA and USC are leaving, aren't you better off in the Pac-12 competing for the spot in the playoff than going to the Big Ten? And I'm, I'm not saying they can't improve to the point where they'll be consistently you know, competing for the... But Ohio State, Michigan, I don't know. I just figure you're competing for third, fourth, fifth place in the other... Why not just stay where you are and really have a shot at the playoff? I think the answer is if if what you care about is winning national championships or making making it to the playoff. Yes, I think you could make a very good argument oh, that silly, Utah silly and, and Washington. Me. If you're looking to make money, Scott, silly yeah, you have, me, to, silly you have, you have okay. to jump. The, the the money that the Big Ten and the SEC are going to be distributing in a couple of years, we're talking possibly eighty million dollars a year to each of its schools. It's just going to vastly outstrip what the what the Pac-12 is distributing to its schools. So so yes, I think the answer is from a competitive balance standpoint. Yeah, you'd rather be the best team in the in the Pac-12 than be the eighth or ninth best team in the SEC. But uh, from a financial standpoint. Uh, you're going to be left behind probably if you if you end up staying, and that's the tough balance. This college football playoff, Scott, you mentioned it, is going to make a lot more money than the one makes right now. The, 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 the four-team format right now, currently entirely on ESPN's family of networks, uh, that's about the, the the playoff makes about five hundred million dollars a year that it distributes to its teams. Uh, that could double, I think, fairly easily with the twelve-team model. One of the interesting parts of this, and, and we've talked about this on the show, ESPN has a stranglehold right now on postseason college football. They own it. Al- almost all of the bowls are on ESPN. ESPN is the sponsorship agent for a lot of the big ones. That is almost definitely going to change under this new format. It seemed very clear that the powers that be across college football like the idea of having multiple networks involved in the playoff. My guess is that we're going to end up with a with a 12-team college football playoff that is partially... ESPN and then partially likely Fox, but somebody else uh, that, that, that has another big part of this package. Um, and that seems to be a, a, a big goal. And one of the reasons this isn't going to start, it could start earlier, but they're tar- targeting 2026 is that the, the 12 year original ESPN deal is up after the 2025 national championship. Everything's open for negotiation. What you want, you want an opener and we want to go early. Sure. What's it worth to you? Exactly. So that's the conversation that's going to happen now with ESPN. ESPN has, has, has those two extra years of exclusivity before 2026. And if they want to move to a 12 team playoff now, how much does ESPN want to pay so that for at least the first two years of the, of the 12 team payoff ESPN controls it. And, And do they want to do that or just wait until 2026 and let multiple networks take a slice at it. Those are the conversations that are going to happen now. So Any at some chance, point, we're going to have a 12-team playoff. It's just unclear when that happens. All right. Put on your croupy hat. Any chance those first-round games, I guess I'll just call them first-round games, um, become maybe streaming only? You know, they're, they're, they are dangling carrots. There's a reason why ESPN has a bundled price. If you want Hulu, Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus just slightly higher than if you just take ESPN plus alone, they want to incentivize people to take the whole shebang. Uh, I would think the easiest way to do that is with some exclusive programming that lots of people care about. Maybe they sign up and say, yeah, I'll take the Hulu and the other as well. Why not? Uh, what do you think? Any chance uh, this could go streaming or do, do we think, no, we, we got to keep this on linear now for the widest possible eyeball collection? I think it's certainly possible. The This debate of do you take the money or do you take the reach 
double header with an MLS game? What? The, the reach is winning. To, to be totally clear, right reach now in, in our industry, there have been a number, and Big Ten is one of them, I believe. There have been a number of recent media deals where Amazon has been the highest bidder. And Amazon has not gotten those contracts. It is clear that for a lot of top tier programming and, and, and MLS is different because they went with Apple. But for the most part, most of these leagues, most of these rights holders are saying, I'm willing to, to stay on some form of a linear thing, cable, because the reach is bigger right now. That could easily change in the future. But just in looking at the way that, that the most recent college sports deals netted out, and I'm talking about the Big Ten, I'm talking about the SEC, it seems pretty clear that, that the powers that be, at least in those conferences, are looking for reach as well. I think they like the idea of uh, a, 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 of an ESPN or, or a Fox Sports maybe more than they would an Apple or an Amazon, but I definitely would not never say never. All right. I, just for fun, since we have some stats here and we, we can say... Let's, should we compare the NFL because it's behemoth? And I mean, it's a good segue because the NFL has always said sure. our desire is reach, right? The broadest possible reach. So the you know they will have some streaming, they'll dip the toe in, but they will never go wide, wide. And if it's going to cost them eyeballs, but we mentioned you know MLS went with the Apple deal. Uh, how many of fans now? This is like native fans to each league. Would you say subscribe to Apple TV? If I was going to compare MLS and the NFL, what number do you think? And I know you've peaked at these stats, but you probably don't remember. So I'm trying to think. Um, subscribe to Apple TV, MLS. You're right. I'll give you the number in MLS and you go yeah. for NFL. And you know, obviously, because of the discussion here, you know it's going to be lower. Yeah. 28% of people who say they are uh, digitally native fans of MLS. 28% subscribe to Apple TV. What do you think about the NFL? So I, so I know MLS was the highest number. It was, it was part of the conversation around that deal that they over-index for Apple TV subscribers. I'm going to say the NFL. MLS is at 28. I'm going to say... NFL, it's obviously lower, and it might be a bit lower. I'm going to say 19. All right. How about this? MLS, 28%. NBA, 20%. NHL, 22%. NFL, if I could drum roll, I would, 17%. Wow. Not bad. Not okay. bad. Right? So, not, not so lower than all. almost all those other, uh, lower than all those other leagues. Yeah. Yeah. And they're also, uh, if we're dealing with NFL, NHL, NBA, MLS, uh, MLS is the only league of the ones we just said where their digitally native fans stream live TV. The only one with more than half of those fans that actually stream live TV. 46 for the NBA, which surprises me. 45 for the NHL, also surprises me. 42 for the NFL. That does not surprise me. My bet would be that um, streaming viewership uh, is higher in concentrated urban areas, which might be an argument for college sports being closer to the NFL side of things. It's so regional, and, and it just reaches big pockets of the, of the country, big, big, big rural pockets of the country where professional sports don't even touch. So, so my guess would be when, if you could look at those numbers for college sports fans nationally, you might see a number that, that is very close to closer to the 17% would be my guess than the 28% for, for major league soccer. All right, let's switch to the Dallas Cowboys because the NFL is coming soon. By the way, uh, for the start of the season, Sportico will be, uh, producing a series of stories on succession planning. We've seen some problems with teams when the general partner has passed away. There's been family bickering in a number of situations, including the Denver Broncos. That that was now ironed out with Rob Walton's purchase. So we're going to take a big look at how uh, owners uh, go about their succession planning. And interestingly enough, you know, Nugget, maybe people did not know, the NFL wants to hear from each team every year. What's the plan? We need to know. We want to know your plan. If something has changed, you have to file an amended plan. So very important. And I'm sure one of the people that is uh, knee deep in all this is Jerry Jones. But if I said to you, 
Mr. Novi Williams. What's the best investment Jerry Jones has made? I think you and many, many others would knee jerk. It's it's got to be the Cowboys, right? It has to be the Cowboys. He paid one hundred and fifty million for that in in nineteen eighty nine. Right, That's right, a pretty right. darn good deal. Yeah. Oh, maybe not though, right? Because he did doing doing and did pretty well in the natural gas market. That's not bad. He's got three hundred percent gain on oil and gas assets he acquired uh, compared to and we we air quote just fifty eight percent gain so far on the Cowboys over the same time. Yeah, it's, anyone who uh, who has big investments in in natural gas or oil is having a pretty darn good last couple of years, and and Jerry Jones, no exception there. Uh, this is money that an investment that that our our colleague Brendan Coffee detailed in a Sportico story that I'd recommend people read. It's really interesting. Essentially, Jerry Jones sold a bunch of wells and uh, active wells and untapped wells to a company, took took equity in that company, and that company is soaring right now, up 300%. Comstock Resources. Comstock Resources, up 300% in the past four years. The Cowboys in that span, only up 58%. And, and to tie this story, Scott, to, to, to the succession planning that you just mentioned, a big part of that, that feature, the, the series of features we're doing, is a look at how different... NFL owners are by equity that's not in their NFL team. And there are some very long tenured NFL owners like the Maras and the Roonies and the McCaskies who've been in the league for, for, for 80, 90 years. Uh, and they bought their teams for like a hundred dollars or like a thousand dollars. And they don't have, the family doesn't have all that much wealth. That's not tied up in this multi-billion dollar asset. And, and guess is, what you do? You do have to pay tax on the sale of a franchise. You do. That, that is a cap gain. If you would. And then you have a lot of, of more recent owners and Jerry Jones, not all that recent, but bought his team in 1989. But there's a lot of owners who came to the league already fairly wealthy, have a pretty vibrant non-NFL business that is, in, in Jerry Jones's case, uh, is, is thriving. So you get these very different dichotomies between ownership groups where there are some that are the, the 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 football team is the asset. It's the only thing that they own, uh, and then the, you have that's other the source groups. of the wealth. Yeah, that's and then the you have other groups that are billionaires outside of their NFL asset, uh, and it creates really interesting dynamics where, where where some of those groups can do things with their franchise. Think about estate planning in a way that the other ones can't, just because of the the other other cash that they have. And something people may not have thought of: as the principal owner gets older, you have more generations. You have kids. You have grandkids. Sometimes you have stepkids. You have different parts of you know uh, families. Uh, there's dilution that occurs, which makes the process even more difficult. So there 100%. are vehicles. So sometimes you can sell the team in one batch and the stadium and land in another, enabling you to utilize things like a 1031 like kind exchange, uh, where if you roll it into another property. So just just the fact. Oh, look at you. Hey, 1031 like kind exchange. You, you know, I have purchased my <laughs> share of apartments uh, throughout the years and now, you know, the suburban home. But yeah, I mean, you, you are exempt if you, it has been your principal residence for two years. As a single person, I believe you are exempt for up to $250,000 of profit. Hmm. If you're married, I believe it's $500,000. But as you well know, the if people who have been in, in properties for yeah, you know, what five, ten, fifteen years, especially in a place like Manhattan, you could have bought for five hundred thousand. It could be worth ten million right now. So you know there is significant uh, gain there, and you got to figure out how can I shield myself from having to do that. Well, 
it's the same in pro sports. So we're going to take a real good look at that. Uh, what's your succession planning? Who who are you uh, <laughs> deciding to? Uh, I, I hope I get a piece of the Novi Williams fortune. You know, it's not just Nita and Dad. If if the saying is more money, more problems, I have no problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, n- not something that I have uh, have have thought that uh, to be totally honest, I've thought that much about. But yeah, the, the the soaring asset value of these NFL teams just makes all of this stuff way more difficult. Maybe someday uh, but- when when Washington Heights pops off. Uh, my apartment will be worth enough that I have to worry about this stuff. All right. Uh, when Lin Manuel Miranda decides to come by and sign <laughs> yeah, him, and then the bricks outside the building, and in the Heights, yeah. he, he does, yeah, he does a scene in your apartment or something that'd be worth more. But tell me now, because I do consider you not not only like a protege but a friend. You please tell me you have a will. You've done that. I do not. You yeah. do not. Shame on you. But buddy. this Go. is yeah. This is gonna this is gonna spur me doing it. Yeah. Good. I I, I hope you do. He is the unprepared Eben Novi <laughs> Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thanks, Matt, for working on the holiday. Our digital media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Media Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.